You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what he has to say in his word. Well, good morning. Thank you, Adam, for that kind and gracious introduction there. Um, I wanted to start out by saying that I am certainly honored to be preaching today. And as Adam already mentioned, I'll go ahead and maybe just reiterate. For those of you who do not know me, my name is DJ Madigan. I am a seminary student at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I have my lovely wife, Megan, three girls, Delilah, Eden, and Jovi, and two more on the way. And yes, you heard that right. We are having twins. Um, so praise the Lord. I'm not sure if they will be boys or girls yet, but I'm certainly praying for some boys in this household. <laughs> Nonetheless, uh, Pastor Cody asked me graciously to pick a psalm and to preach out of it. And I, of course, prayed about it, and I just felt led to Psalm 23. This particular psalm is arguably the most well-known text of the entire Old Testament, if not the entire Bible. Some of you out there could probably recite it right now. I personally remember constantly reciting this text at a young age as I grew up in a Christian school my entire life. Now, before I open with prayer, I would like to start out with reading the text of Psalm 23. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Psalm 23, or you can look up at the two screens behind me. God's Word says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what an honor it is to stand in your house today teaching your word. Set me aside, Lord. Let me be nothing but your mouthpiece to your people. Give me grace as I handle and divide your word. Protect me from error. Help me to say the things that you want me to say in order to strengthen, feed, and encourage your people here today. In Jesus' name we all said, Amen. Now, I'd like to begin here with a few questions and don't feel um, as if you need to raise your hands or whatnot. <laughs> Surely you can if you want. How, how many of you here are truly confident in saying that the Lord is your shepherd? And how many of you truly understand what that means? That the Lord is your shepherd. Now, this is truly a bold statement with many implications. However, there is no other person than David who could have expressed this statement with a genuine heart. And just so, who happens to be the author of this psalm? David knew the Lord was his shepherd. Experientially. Because in a real sense, he himself was a shepherd. He understood what it meant to be a shepherd and the qualities that one must possess in order to shepherd a flock well. David saw that his Lord had marvelously possessed 
these wonderful qualities to a degree that which is divine. And thus the Lord, metaphorically speaking, became and was perpetually David's shepherd. Now, this first section I'd like to call good and gracious shepherd. Take a look at verse 1 with me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now a question that arises is what exactly is a shepherd and who is our shepherd? Historically, we know that David was a shepherd boy. You can read about the story of David's origin as a shepherd boy in 1 Samuel 16. Nonetheless, in the text of Samuel, he was described as one who tended sheep or kept the sheep. Now, etymologically, he was one who herded the sheep. This is how we get the word shepherd in English. It is a compound of sheep and herd. A shepherd, in simple terms, is someone who tends or keeps sheep. This answers the first portion of our question. Of course, other synonyms can be used, guides, steers, directs, leads, and so on. But what I need you to understand is that it is relevant that before David became king of Israel at 30 years old, around 1000 BC or so, he was a shepherd. He took care of and protected flocks of sheep. And he wrote this psalm describing God as a shepherd and God's people as his flock of sheep. Now, as we look at the latter portion of the question, it is also imperative to recognize that this is not his father or his pastor or friend, even though God does work through people like that, but rather it is the Lord who is his shepherd. It is God himself. Now, some of you may have noticed that the word for Lord is written in all capital letters. The word for Lord in all capital letters here is in the Hebrew, Yahweh. It is known as the Tetragrammaton, which means four letters. For those of you who do not know what the Tetragrammaton is, it is simply the Hebrew name of God transliterated into four letters. The name of Yahweh consists of four consonants in Hebrew, which are Yod, He, Wah, He, which is read from right to left in the Hebrew. And history tells us that since ancient Hebrew had no written vowels, it's uncertain on how the sacred name was pronounced originally, if it was just consonants. But there are records of the name in Greek, which did have written vowels. And it is from these records that we have insight into how to pronounce the name Yahweh. Now, shortly before the first century AD, it became common for Jews to avoid saying this divine name for fear of misusing it and breaking the third commandment, right? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This resulted in the original pronunciation being lost. Whenever the Jews read scripture aloud and they encountered this divine name, they, they substituted another Hebrew word, Adonai, which means Lord or my Lord, and you can see that all throughout the scriptures. Eventually, Hebrew developed written vowels which appeared as small marks called vowel points, and they were placed above and below the consonants of a word. So the vowels from Adonai, Lord, and, their, and also Elohim, which means God, they found their way into the consonants between yod He, wah He, thus forming Yahweh. This was done to remind the reader of Scripture to say something else other than Yahweh whenever he read Yahweh. So as we look back at Scripture and history today, we can be certain that this is the personal covenant name that God gave to his people. 
We see this in Exodus chapter 3 when God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush. We all know this story. God reveals Himself to Moses that He is the I Am. This I Am statement references the incommunicable attribute of a deity which God alone possesses. He alone is self-existent, self-sufficient, and self-sustaining. He has no needs outside of Himself that need to be met. In fact, we find our needs met in Him. This also points to His incommunicable attribute of immutability. God never changes, though we live in times that are constantly changing. There is only one constant in this world, and that is the Lord. He is our anchor, our rock, our cornerstone, our refuge, our mighty fortress. This is how the biblical authors describe Him. What comfort there is in knowing that the Lord, that Yahweh, is our shepherd. You'll notice the state of being verb is, is used. As the Lord is our shepherd, not could be or would be or can be, but that the Lord at every moment of every day is protecting, defending, and watching over us. Now David understood what this meant, that the shepherd assumes the total responsibility for the well-being of his sheep. Sheep cannot take care of themselves. They are not self-sufficient. They do not have any idea of where green pastures and still waters are. Sheep are susceptible to wolves, lions, thieves, robbers, and, and all of the above. They fall off the sides of cliffs and get caught in holes lackadaisically. They require constant direction and protection. They need a shepherd. Notice the portion of text, I shall not want. David is so confident in his shepherd, Yahweh, that he lacks nothing. He desires nothing. He has no desire for the superficial or the artificial. He trusts in the provision and guidance of God, knowing his needs are cared for and tended to by God. We see this theme of lacking nothing further noted in Psalm 34.9, which was also written by David. Oh, fear the Lord, you saints, for those who fear Him lack nothing. Nothing. Now I'd like to end this section with a few questions. For us who fear the Lord and know Jesus Christ as the Good Shepherd as He reveals Himself in John 10, are we truly confident in saying that the Lord is our Shepherd? Do we really know what this means? Now this second section I'd like to call Feeding and Leading. Take a look at verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. As we come to verse 2, David begins to explain the needs that God is meeting in our lives. As we look at verse 2, it is crucial to understand that Hebrew poetry is written in a particular literary feature called parallelism, in which the words of two or more lines of text are directly related in some way. Now, in this text, there is an obvious A line and a B line. The A line is the truth that God is feeding us, and the B line showcases God leading us. This is precisely what God is doing right now in your life if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Take a look at the A line again. He makes me lie down in green pastures. God is actively making us or causing us to lie down in green pastures. In other words, to stop and settle down. To rest in green pastures. Now what you need to understand historically 
is that sheep would literally graze and feed in green pastures for the sake of nourishment. In this context, I would argue that David is talking about the Word of God. It is the Word of God that nourishes us. It is food for us. It is the Lord, it is Yahweh, who is actively causing us to feed on His Word. And there are two ways that God is doing this, internally and externally. Internally, God by His Spirit is creating a hunger in your heart for His Word, if you are one of His sheep. Understand, He is actively creating an appetite within you for the Word of God. And the more you eat of it, the more you want of it. Take a look at Paul's words in Philippians 2.13 to the church in Philippi, he exhorts, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It is God who is actively giving us needed rest, safety, and nourishment. It is by His grace that we grow spiritually hungry for His truth so that we may be sanctified. And He does this for His good pleasure alone. Now I want you to think about that plural word pastures. This is not just one pasture, but a vast multitude of pastures. And that is the way the Word of God is. It is an abundant supply to address every need and to meet every every need and every issue in our lives. To articulate this further, the Prince of Preachers, C.H. Spurgeon, notes, These green pastures representing God's Word are always fresh, rich, and never exhausted. So internally, God is creating a hunger and appetite in us for His Word, and surely you recognize that. However, there is the external force that God is bringing to bear upon our soul, that being times of trials, tribulations, and troubles as they bring our life to a standstill and bring us to our knees, and ultimately they cause us to lie down before God and look up. Let me illustrate this with the most recent trial I've been through. Last year I was faced with the most difficult news of my entire life. Our baby girl Jovi was diagnosed with a rare lethal birth defect. And what this meant is that she would not live long after birth or possibly at all. The Lord ended up taking her upon birth and the days succeeding her death were quiet. There was a real felt stillness. There were multiple occasions where I knelt before God, I fell flat on my face, before him in worship as if everything externally had stopped. So, when we find ourselves in seasons of trials and tribulations and storms of life, we must understand that God uses these times to cause us to lie down in green pastures, to find nourishment for our souls, which is only found in his word, in his truth. Yet there is a second line to verse 2. He leads me beside still waters. There are multiple things that I would like to bring to your attention here. God is always leading you. God is always leading you. Every moment of every day. Leading you into personal holiness. Leading you into Christ-likeness. Leading you into experience's fullness. The issue is, are you going to follow his leadership? The introductory question arises again. Are we truly confident in saying that the Lord is our shepherd? Are we fully submitted to the shepherd's leadership? Paul mentions in Romans 8.14 that all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you're a son of God, you're being led by God actively, moment by moment in your life. But what you need to understand is that God does not drive us. We are not cattle. A shepherd leads out in front. 
God leads us by example, by His Word, His instruction, His Spirit within us. Now the text says, He leads me beside still waters. Historically, there would be places such as creeks, streams, or rivers where there would be rocks to cause the water to back up and be still and placid. And that is precisely where the shepherd would lead his sheep graciously. Not by the rapids as the sheep would be fearful there. Instead, the shepherd brings them to places of peace and calmness. The picture here is that God is leading us to those places where there is peace within our soul and inner calm within the storm. Outside it may be raging, but inside our hearts there is a God-given peace that surpasses all understanding, all philosophical inquiry, all intellectual capacity. Look at Paul's exhortation again to the church in Philippi. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now let's take a look at Jesus' promise to the disciples in John's Gospel. John 14, 27 says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is where the Lord, this is where Yahweh is leading us to places where His supernatural peace floods our, our heart and our soul. Beside still waters where it's quiet and calm on the inside. This peace is real as we follow the leadership of the Lord and find nourishment in His Word. Now two questions come to mind as we end this section. Are you truly feeding your soul on the Word of God? Can you exclaim like the psalmist in Psalm 119.103, how sweet are your words to my taste? Have you tasted the words of God? Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Now this third section I like to call rejuvenation and guidance. Look at verse 3. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now this word restore is difficult to wrap our minds around, but I'm going to give you the lexical definition for it. It means to, to turn back or to return or to go back to where it once was. For example, in Genesis 3.19, we read that by the sweat of your brow you will eat the bread. You'll eat bread until you return to the ground. Return to the ground. It was also used of Noah when he sent the dove from the ark, and the dove cannot find a place to land, so the dove returned to Noah. The idea here is that God returns our souls back to the way they were before we began to backslide or stray or wander. Can we even grasp this? To better grasp this, we must understand what our soul is. Our soul can be defined as our inner spiritual life, truly our real self. Sheep are continually straying away, wandering away, but he restores us and he brings us back to our first love. Just as the church in Ephesus was rebuked by God or by Jesus in Revelation 2.4 for straying from their first love. Now the same verb for restore is used in Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The idea here is to replenish and rejuvenate the soul when needed. God is constantly at work within our lives, replenishing and reviving us to our former condition with the Lord. Now, when in doubt, always quote C.H. Spurgeon. 
He makes a great point in his book, The Treasury of David. He says, when the soul grows sorrowful, he, being God, revives it. When the soul becomes sinful, he sanctifies it. And when the soul becomes weak, he strengthens it. And my question is, are any of you low in grace? Is your spirituality at a low ebb? Because Spurgeon says that God takes this ebb and, and he turns it into a flood, which then restores our soul. And if that is not encouraging during seasons of lowliness, I'm not sure anything else can be. You must understand that God is constantly at work bringing our souls back to where they need to be. How good of God to restore our soul. Not only does he restore us, but he guides us. Take a look at verse 3. He leads, or also translated as guides, me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He guides us personally and individually in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The word righteousness here means right living or practical holiness. This is good, as sheep are not like any other animals. They have no sense of direction. A lot of animals migrate and have an incredible capacity to migrate year after year, but not a sheep. They have no sense of direction. They must be guided on paths of righteousness. The focus here is paths of righteousness. God is constantly leading and guiding us by his word and spirit into right living. And it is this right living that glorifies and honors him. This is the idea here is for the fame of his name for the honor of his own glory. This is the highest of all motives. Everything that God is doing in our lives is for his glory and for our good. Our good and his glory are not in competition with one another. That which glorifies him is for our greatest good. Psalm 5.8 says, our Lord, or, O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. This is a prayer that we should all be praying. Lord, do not let me wander through life and lead me astray by my fallacious impulses and desires, yet make my way straight. Mark my path on the way I should go, as that is what honors you. Now friends, this path is marked by his word, the Decalogue, the Beatitudes, every prescription, every imperative, the Lord's Prayer, everything found throughout Scripture. Our path is marked out explicitly, and we should pray that God leads us in righteousness. As David prays, what a blessing it is to know that our shepherd is at work in this way. I'd like to end this section with a few questions. Are you following and obeying God as he leads you onto these paths of righteousness? If you remember one thing from this section, you need to understand that a fundamental mark of a sheep is that he recognizes the voice of his shepherd. He recognizes the voice of his shepherd. But not only does he recognize the voice of his shepherd, he follows him wherever he leads. And brothers and sisters, I ask, are you pursuing, submitting, and following the good shepherd? Now this fourth section I'd like to call fearlessness and calmness. Look at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In this particular portion of the psalm, David amidst trials points to the comfort and protection of Yahweh. This really, in one sense, is a rebuke to Christians who do not think that the Christian life is, mar that is marked by suffering. 
Notice again what Paul says to the church in Philippi, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you not only believe in him, but you suffer for his sake. Now when you exegete that text, you will not believe what the verb granted is in the Greek. It is harizomai, which means grace or favor. It is literally God's grace or favor for us not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. And Jesus said in the greatest sermon on earth, the Olivet Discourse, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and they persecute you and they say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice. Rejoice. He doesn't say try to or will you or can you. He says and he commands us to rejoice. This is a command, a prescription from the Son of God. We must rejoice and be exceedingly glad. The text doesn't stop. And be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, we see this beautifully and biblically modeled in Acts chapter 5. I don't have time to go through the whole chapter. Uh, the apostles are arrested, they're questioned, and they are brought before the high priest for the name, message, and proclamation of Jesus. Um, we'll look at verse 40. God's word says, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them, and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So, after the apostles were imprisoned for teaching about Jesus, they were miraculously set free by God and charged by God to preach again. And they exclaimed to the high priest and council that they must obey God rather than men, because the high priest and council wanted them to stop. And at the end of the confrontation, the high priest and council tells them, um, just as we just read, just to never speak of the name of Jesus. But then look at verse 41 with me. Then they left the presence of the council, this, the, these being the apostles, weeping, sorrowful, distressed. It's not what the text says. Then the apostles left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And friends, is this true of us? Perhaps you're here today amidst a trial in your life. Are you like David and the apostles who understood the prescription from the Son of God, not only to fear no evil, for he is with us, but to rejoice exceedingly amidst suffering and trials? Now as we transition back to the text of Psalm 23.4, I want you to understand something. David was a man after God's own heart, and here he was seriously walking through the valley of the shadow of death. There, were, there are moments where we certainly live through times that are marked by death and suffering. We need to know God's calmness and his peace given to us by his grace in these moments. And some of you here might be familiar with a man named John MacArthur. If you're not, you certainly need to be. <laughs> uh, an incident happened some years ago where his wife found him, herself in a major accident, major car accident. John's daughter was struggling with the situation and became worried and stressed to a point that was unbiblical, and she recognizes that. John MacArthur took her by the face and said, if you really believe what you say you believe about God and who he is, then start acting like it. And this message was forever burned into her memory and changed her life forever. Maybe there's some of you here sitting here today who need to be grabbed by the face 
and told the same statement. If you really believe what you say you believe about God and who he is, then start acting like it. Now take a look at the beginning portion of verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now the historical imagery here is one of a shepherd leading his flock from one grazing place to another. Now to get from one place to the other, it would involve passing through a narrow valley in which there are high jagged cliffs and the sun cannot shine through this narrow valley. Because it was dark, it was the perfect breeding ground for predator-like animals and even thieves to wait and stalk their vulnerable prey, such as sheep as they just wandered aimlessly and helplessly through these valleys. David here pictures himself as one of these sheep going through this life-threatening circumstance, this valley, and he doesn't tell us what the circumstance is, but it is a place of perilous danger. And David is not exempt from walking through this place or this valley or this trial of perilous danger, just as we are not. And he says amidst life's most most difficult and life-threatening circumstances, he fears no evil. The Hebrew word here for fear is to suffer dread or terror, and David exclaims that he fears no evil. How can this be? One thing we must understand is that what should distinguish a believer from an unbeliever is that the believer knows the peace of God within their soul and therefore fears no evil. We fear no evil, for you are with me. God is with us. The idea with me is to protect us and guard us. You need to understand. Nothing, nothing comes into our life that God did not send or allow. Let me say that again. Nothing enters our life that God did not send or allow. God is completely sovereign. He has predestined all things to occur. Nothing can thwart his counsel and his divine decree. Remember in Job 1.10, Satan says, Have you not put a hedge around him, him being Job, and his house that all he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and possessions, and you've increased it in the land. But stretch out your hand, God. Touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord says to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So in this, in this context, there is protection, right? There was this hedge around Job that Satan could not get through unless God allowed. So God is sovereign over us. He provides, his providential grace is extended toward us. Therefore, we do not fear evil because the Lord is with us. In Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says, the Great Commission passage, the most emphatic words of Jesus before he ascends to the right hand of the Father. He says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You must understand, friends, that there is a supernatural God-given calm amidst the valley of the shadow of death that God gives to his people. And this calmness does not mean that we're naive or we're ignorant, but it does mean amidst the storm that we can go to sleep. Now, look at the latter portion of verse 4. He says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Historically, the rod here was typically an oak club about two feet long, like a baseball bat, and that would be used to defend the flock against any wild animals, lions, bears, thieves. But it is symbolic for us, even though it was a literal rod of protection used by shepherds. To us, it's a metaphorical picture of God's superior power known as his incommunicable attribute of omnipotence. 
God's all-powerful and he protects his people. His sheep are protected against whatever comes against. Take another look at your staff. This is the shepherd's crook that is bent and hooked on one end to prod and poke the sheep and to bring them onto the right direction when they stray or wander. The Lord's rod and staff are emblematic of the Lord's protective care over His people. The Hebrew word for comfort, you're going to recognize it, is Naham. And Nehemiah also means the comfort of Yahweh. However, God's rod and staff, His protective care comforts us. God's protective care comforts us amidst death and perilous times. It is important to note that the word is also translated to to change the mind. Sometimes it's used of God in what we call an anthropological expression. God changing his mind from our observational perspective. It's sort of like how the sun appears to rise and set from our observational perspective, but in reality the sun does not rise or set, even though it appears to due to the earth's rotation on its axis. Likewise, in reality, God does not change his mind, and otherwise the doctrine of immutability would be nullified. But on the contrary, God changes our mind from being fearful to where we're comforted and full of peace. This is what we need amidst the storms, amidst life. It is in our weakness where the Lord's strength is made perfect. I'd like to end this section with saying, Maybe you're the kind of person who always jumps to the worst-case scenarios. Or maybe you're the type of person when a major problem comes up, you rush to solve it quickly at all costs without any spiritual discipline or inquiry. My question is, amidst the storms, do you truly fear no evil? Do you find your peace and and calmness in the shepherd's protection and guidance in his rod and in his staff? Friends, is the shepherd enough? Now, this fifth section I'd like to call serving and fulfilling. Take a look at verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now, till this point, God has been represented metaphorically, metaphorically as a good shepherd and we his sheep. But there is a shift in imagery and suddenly David portrays God as a gracious host and David as a guest in God's banquet hall. The scene shifts completely, completely from green pastures and still waters. Now we're in a banquet hall with a table and a cup. We have gone from an outside pastoral setting to an inside setting in the house of the Lord. However, this psalm nonetheless has one constant theme, and that is God's care for his people. Here within this text, God is tending toward our needs. He is serving us. Did you hear that? He is serving us. Typically, we think of us serving God, but This is how the text begins. David says, You, being Yahweh, prepare a table before me, us, in the presence of my enemies. God is setting the table for us. The word prepare means to set in order, to ordain. And here God is putting everything into its right place in our lives and He's serving us. He's meeting our needs. But not only does He do this constantly, but what's remarkable is that He does this in the presence of our enemies. David is here speaking that even in the midst of enemies surrounding him, the Lord who ordains and sets the table is serving him, and that is sufficient for him. Now these enemies could be from his own family, his own rank. Nevertheless, the Lord is the one who ordains, who set, or is the one who sets the table and ordains who sits at the table. He then serves us and meets our need in the presence of our enemies. 
And some of you may have friends or family members who have girded themselves against you due to your faith in the Lord Jesus, and you can relate to exactly what David is writing here. Let me remind you that the Lord's grace and encouragement is more than sufficient to enable you to live in a way that glorifies and honors him. But not only does God serve us, he satisfies us. We go on to read, You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. This speaks of the abundance of the Lord's provision as he is serving and satisfying us. You have anointed my head with oil. It's a bit difficult to understand exactly what he's referring to, but whether it's the gracious host receiving you into his house, pouring some sweet-smelling oil on your head after a hot day, we'll stick with that. Um, that's possible. Um, what we do know is that David was the king of Israel. He was certainly anointed with oil in his preparation for his coronation, and being anointed pictures the ministry of the fullness of the Spirit upon the king, as the king would assume the office and the Spirit was poured out on him, right? Giving him wisdom, discernment, and the spiritual powers that would be needed in order to fulfill the function of the office. And C.H. Spurgeon sees it this way, so it must be right. Nah, that's a joke. He could be wrong. I don't think he is, though. <laughs> he sees it this way in his book, The Treasury of David. I encourage you to read it. He says, A fresh anointing for every day's duty. We must go day by day to God, the Holy Spirit, that we may have our needs, our needs anointed with oil. End quote. So, what we can safely say is that God's supply far exceeds our needs, whatever we need. God has a vast supply to more more, more than meet our needs. So much so that David says, my cup overflows. God is so lavish in his grace as he's pouring it. The cup cannot contain it. It's just overflowing. Jesus says in John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And that word abundantly means that God has more to give than what we can receive. God has more to give us than what we can receive. God has more to give in spiritual graces, provisions, blessings, than what we could even take in and experience in our life. My goodness, it's the, the vast oceans of God's grace. We cannot fathom it. We cannot contain the infinite blessing that God has for us. And again, he says, my cup overflows. Speaking of the fullness of blessing that God has for us. Here we see God serving us and satisfying us and providing for us. Understand, friends, that God is not miserly toward us as He is meeting our needs within our lives. Paul says to the church in Ephesus, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Je Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And with that being said, He is truly a good and gracious host. I'd like to end this section with a few questions again. Have we recognized God's service and provision toward us amidst all things? Have we recognized the unfathomable reality of the spiritual blessings within our lives given graciously to us by God? Now this sixth section is our final section and some of you out there are going, yes. I understand. I'm going to call it pursuing and keeping. Look at verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Everything within Psalm 23 has been building to this verse. It describes David's personal relationship with God, and this psalm begins with the Lord, and it ends with the Lord. There are 17 times when the psalmist uses the personal pronouns my or I or me. 
there is a strong emphasis on the highly personal relationship that David has with his Lord. We do not just have external religion. We have an internal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And every day we are in the confines of this relationship with God. No matter what we go through, we're surrounded by God. You can't escape God. There are two truths, though, that I need to point out. The first is that God pursues us as we see, surely, which this word you need to understand is emphatic, meaning indeed this is absolute truth. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Now, goodness and mercy are also translated as loving kindness are two, two incommun uh, communicable attributes of God that are in pursuit of David. Goodness is a broad term which takes in all the blessing and benefits that come flowing into our lives from the Lord. It speaks of God's spiritual prosperity and welfare that is lavished on us. His mercy, or loving kindness, is hesed in Hebrew. It is his loyal covenant love that is unbreakable. His steadfast love. It comes from a root word meaning from hesad, which means to bend down or to bow down. It is really this idea that God is reaching down with his sovereign hand from heaven to put it upon us. It is his condescending love. And David says, surely, absolutely, this is the truth. Goodness and loving kindness will follow me. But wait. The word follow in Hebrew is defined as to be chased after, to run after, to be in hot pursuit after. Meaning we cannot get away from his loving kindness, his goodness, his mercy. But these are communicable attributes and they're represented in figures of speech, in a figure of speech called personification, which means we attribute human-like qualities to an inanimate object. So, Goodness and, and loving kindness or, or mercy, it's, it's really just God himself, right? Goodness and loving kindness cannot chase after us. It's God himself. He's pursuing us every moment of every day. He is relentless in his pursuit of those who are in Christ Jesus. So the question becomes, for how long? For how long will he pursue me? And David answers with, all the days of my life. This is a never-ending pursuit of God to the end of our days. And think about this. This is how the Christian life began. We were running away from God. And he came and pursued us. We could have never found God. Not in a million, billion, trillion years. Paul in Romans 3.11 teaches that there is none who seek after God. No, not one. And God never, never gives up on us. He never stops pursuing us. Even when we do. He is constantly pouring out his goodness, his mercy, his loving kindness on us. To be a believer in Jesus Christ and to be a Christian is to be the very object of God's love and grace. But friends, how could this be any better? Well, David adds, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the climax. The very first word though, and, is very important. It's a coordinating conjunction and it is inseparably connected to what has preceded it what has come before. It's not as if though we should choose the first or, or latter half of the verse. Do I want to dwell in the house of the Lord or should I have him pursue me all the days of my life? No. Not only does God pursue us, but there is more. We will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Once we move in, we will never move out. And for us to dwell in the house of the Lord means that we have moved in to stay. We are seated at the table and the Lord is serving us. We make our home now in God's house and dwell within his presence for eternity, never separated. This is what we call the doctrine of the eternal security of the believer. Once we're saved, we're always saved. There's nothing we could do to fall away from his grace. Pay attention to Jesus' words in John 10, 27. My sheep 
hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So we are forever in the Lord, forever in his house. A house is a personal thing. It is very personal to be in someone's dwelling place. You learn a lot about someone when you are in their dwelling place. Maybe even a little too much. But never with God. Never with God. And this verse speaks to the intimacy and the personal relationship we have with our Lord. We know him in a close personal way. And Psalm 23 ends in such a wonderful way. The Lord pursues us. He keeps us. His love's inescapable and we can never get away from it. What a magnificent reality for those who are of his sheep. Now, as we conclude, please understand, this reality is only true for those who have been born again and who have been saved by the salvific work of Christ Jesus on the cross. Then and only then can you say that the Lord is my shepherd. For those of you who do not know the Lord this intimately, I ask again, how confident are you in saying that the Lord is your shepherd? Do you truly understand what this means? I hope after today I've shed some light and provided an answer to the latter question. But for those of you who are unable to say that the Lord is your shepherd, you can experience the divine blessing, protection, provision, and guidance and leadership from the Lord. But first, but first, you must understand that God commands all people everywhere to repent of their sin, to turn to faith in Jesus Christ, to trust in his salvific work that was laid out on the cross. Understand that mankind fell on their sin in the Garden of Eden and became separated and alienated, alienated from God's presence, plunging the entire human race into imputed, inescapable, sinful nature. Psalm 51.5 says that we have been born and conceived in sin. How can wicked, evil human beings be reconciled to their Creator? This is what is known as the great dilemma. The solution is the cross of Jesus Christ. Repent. Turn from your sin. Put your trust in the hands of the one who obeyed the Father perfectly and lived the life we could have never lived and died the death we should have died. He, on our behalf, he acted as the perfect penal substitutionary atonement. He appeased the wrath of God. He bled and suffered for our sins. He rose from the dead, defeating Satan, defeating sin, defeating death, the world system, unbelief, so that we could be washed clean and so that we could spend eternity in the house of the Lord forever, worshiping our Creator. I'd like to close with Psalm 79, 13. It says, But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. And finally, brothers and sisters, I don't ask anymore, no more questions. But I do confidently say that the Lord truly is our good and gracious shepherd, and we lack nothing. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.